When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today's topic is off-brand for Theodora Speaks. And some of you might think, what are the synergies between career reinvention and baby loss? Well, I'm here to tell you that there are. Because throughout my many professional seasons of life, I've reinvented myself, taken calculated risks, but had to suppress a lot of some of the sadness I was experiencing, whether it be a family member getting sick, a loved one passing on, going for a job promotion and not getting it. But during one of the many seasons of my life, when my husband and I were trying to start our family and conceive, we experienced a few miscarriages. And there was one in particular that really struck a chord with me. And still to this day, actually, when I talk about it, I still tear up. One of our babies got almost to the end of the first trimester when we were about to celebrate with our loved ones and be so excited about procreating and having a starting a family. But unfortunately, that pregnancy wasn't viable and we lost that baby. And I was going through that grievance period and I couldn't share it with all my friends. I couldn't share it at work. I just said I had to have a procedure done and I had to have a DNC and I took time off of work, but a procedure could have been, maybe I had dental work. My colleagues had no idea what I was going through. I didn't tell them. I didn't feel that I could open up because I didn't want to have a target on my back, for example, and the cat's out of the bag that Gil's going to become a mom and will she ever come back to working again? And all the things that unfortunately in society, women are still dealing with and men because pregnancy loss, it's not only physical, but it's also emotional. And we're told, you know, to suppress our emotions, for example, but we need trusted circles and space to go through all this. And so it's something that's still taboo and that's why I wanted to bring it to the forefront for the listeners listening today, because maybe our guest's story can shed some hope and perspective and a light to keep going in life and find what brings you joy. Our guest, Debbie Dannon, is an integral development coach, and she's the founder of Rebel Coaching Practice and Time to Flourish. And Debbie has this unique skill. She is lovely but she can find treasures in ashes. Life's a messy world, but she can still find treasures. Debbie lights up a room and sparkles when you're in her presence. She's Jewish, Turkish, and British. And during one of her many seasons of life, during baby loss that she experienced, she never thought she'd dance again. So when you think about career reinvention and baby loss, some of those synergies are the fact that we have to tap into our hearts, and our minds, physically and emotionally going through all the feels. And baby loss does reinvent us. And it brings us to overcome 
grief, but before we overcome it, we have to go through it and we have to stay in that murky water. And it's okay to do that. It's okay to be sad and to grieve and take the time. And everyone's time is different. Days, months, years. You never fully get over a loss, but if you can find the treasures in the ashes, like Debbie says, well, that's the beauty of life. And it helps us to be happy again and to have our hearts sing and to live the life we were meant to live. So listen, when Debbie addresses her inner critic and shares with us how we should address our inner critics, and we all have them, Debbie points out that we should embrace and comfort our inner critic because it's actually there to protect us and not hurt us. Today's career reinvention topic revolves around a woman who founded her own company as an integral coach, leadership facilitator, and inclusion specialist at Time to Flourish. Welcome, Debbie. Thanks for spending time with us. Thank you for having me, Gail. I'm so happy to be here. So we're here today to talk about career reinvention and baby loss, mm -hmm. so a topic that doesn't really get covered enough in terms of healing, right, and how families, women, men, persevere through. And so you have your own company, you're an entrepreneur, time to flourish. And I love your tagline, find your inner spark and set it free. <laughs> so Debbie, yeah. tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, um, so I am a Jewish, Turkish, British woman, uh, cis woman, um, living in northwest london i was born in southwest london which as a londoner you get very like where in london were you born um so i'll just leave that to the londoners to make of that what you will um i'm bi i'm married to a man i have a daughter called esley um who is just coming on to now and i for the past four years have been um an entrepreneur initially a freelance facilitator trainer and coach and also I had a partnership business called Trust Lab doing uh, essentially diversity and inclusion end-to-end -end consulting. So diagnostics, then interventions, whether it be coaching or um, conversations, training, and then uh, comms as well. That was with my business partner, Yasmin Akhtar, who I'm still very close with. Um, Trust Lab, we decided to part ways with Trust Lab uh, earlier this year. And I had already begun to train as a integral development coach, which we'll talk about when we get to the baby loss story, because it's so entwined. That decision was so entwined with what I was going through. Um, and I, uh, I, I certified, I actually came halfway through my, my certification. So I certified this summer after two years rather than one. Um, but I had already started to incubate time to flourish. And the purpose of time to flourish is that in a world that limits who we are and who we deserve to become time to flourish exists to create a world where flourishing is the norm for our lives our leadership and our legacy and i do this given that the world is not yet a place where flourishing is the norm i do this by sparking and inspiring rebel flourishing <laughs> so my sense is that if i was really to be frank Gail, maybe I need a little more courage. Maybe one day it will happen. Maybe I will change my company name to Time to Rebel <laughs> or Rebel Flourishing. But right now, I mean, it's, it's sort of evolved that way, but it's, I've come to understand that in order to flourish in a world that doesn't allow us to, that has narratives and, um, 
and structures and systems that keep us small and scared and internalizing a lot of rubbish we need to be rebels so i have a um uh, both through my coaching my one-to-one coaching and through my increasingly through programs now group group coaching programs i'm offering people the chance to step into rebel alignment which is all about your strengths leading with your strengths and i learned so much about my strengths and how i as a unique human being rather than a generic human being what even is a generic human being that isn't one like what what i had in me i learned so much of in the kind of the the years of building my businesses alongside just dealing with with immense loss um so rebel alignment is about strengths and commitments uh rebel balance which is about well-being and pushing back on uh, narratives of performativity and comparison and really understanding our bodies and our minds and what we need and rebel courage which seems like we are both so in there we're like yes come on we've got a before we can have confidence we need to have courage and that means speaking the truth it means turning towards the things that are difficult it means finding our ground like we talked about um so i um when people say to me oh well (laughs) it's funny friends of mine say i mean this is the last thing i'll say when people say to me oh you know the entrepreneurship thing is hard but you know you, you know debbie you're so qualified you could always find work elsewhere i'm like yeah but i couldn't find this work which is my work to do elsewhere your path i i totally realized that entrepreneurship and building your own thing isn't for everyone but i do not know what i would do if i wasn't doing this work i love it i love it so you said confidence as well that's another step in my five-step methodology Mm -hmm. is confidence which is so important and i also have clarity in there because you need to clear the cobwebs get the clarity to then gain the confidence to have the courage to go right so debbie i'm curious in life what keeps you motivated what keeps me motivated so the shortest version of this story i think is something that my my coach justin says which is the world is in trouble and people are wonderful and it kind of like seesaws. Sometimes I'm like, what motivates me is the fact that the world is in trouble and feels like very urgent that we uh, create a world where people, where everybody can flourish, where flourishing is the norm. But uh, sometimes that's, the, well, we know that is not the case for lots of reasons that we'll talk about. But um, the other times the seesaw goes the other way and it's because people are wonderful. I am very much a people person and I draw a lot of inspiration from the world, from literature, from poetry, from music, from people that I meet. So um, quite often I'm just astounded at the human spirit, human capacity, and how brilliant and funny and quirky and unique people are, and also how much power people have to, um, to run against the systems that keep us trapped and small and scared. So depending on the day, the world is in trouble and people are wonderful both of them at the same time um keep me going and I guess someone asked me recently what what's my drive I had never been asked that before and I think what what drives me and it's related to our conversation today I think Gail is um is courageous integrity and I thought about this a long time why not courage and why not integrity why why the two I think integrity is important to me because it's about um turning towards every part of ourselves, welcoming our whole selves, including the parts of ourselves that we might not enjoy very much, like anger and sadness and rage and, uh, you know, all those resistant things that we have resistance to um, and finding ways to welcome even those experiences. And 
um, and also joy, like the fullness of joy, the fullness of, um, of life's, uh, life's brilliance. Um, so integrity and, and I guess moral integrity too, but I think, I think integrity for me is about including it all and courageous is what we need to be, I think, to have integrity, to, to really have integrity in a world that doesn't, um, you know, doesn't necessarily, uh, encourage us to include every experience that we have. Um, I think it takes a good deal of courage to stand up to your own expectations, you know, rip them up and throw them away or rewrite them. And also to the expectations around us of folk who um, might love us very dearly, but don't really um, have an interest in us, you know, <laughs> flourishing. I love it because courage is one of the steps in my five-step methodology in terms of professional risk-taking and, and calculated risk-taking and career reinvention. It's hard to find courage because you really have to face your fears, temper them, and take the leaps of faith, right, into the unknown. But courage is so, so important. So along those lines, Debbie, how, how do you suppress your fear when you think about a fear that you face? Yeah, such a good question. Well, I'd, I think I sort of turn towards, so there's, there's fears that I kind of see, I want to run a mile and then I have to gently coax myself to turn back towards it. So um, I think, well, apart from jellyfish, because I stuck my hand through a jellyfish when I was quite young and I kind Ooh. of brought my hand to the surface and was like, what is on my hand? It was like out of a sci-fi movie. It was horrible. So I have a pro proper fear of jellyfish. Um, but Which ocean, jellyfish, Which that? ocean? Which ocean were you in? Um, when I was swimming in the, the sea near Istanbul, off the Prince's Islands in Istanbul, which is where we used to spend summers with my family. Um, yeah, I stuck my hand through a really nasty little jellyfish. It wasn't a stingy one, but it was gross. Um, so uh, apart from jellyfish, what am I scared of? So I think um, one of the things as a people person that I've had to confront about myself is that I... I do fear people's judgment and people not liking me. And for the longest time, Gail, I think like many of us who grew up different, I um, really played the game of, I want everyone to like me. Everyone needs to like me for my success. And um, I was, I became likable in a way <laughs> like, and by likable, what bits of you get chucked out, you know, the bit that, has feelings that people might not like. Like, you know, often I would, you know, be like, well, what do you want to do rather than what do I want to do? Um, I think um, there comes a point at which, <laughs> I don't know, th th there comes a point at which you have to go, yeah, it's not about what people think of me anymore. <laughs> and and it's, still, it's still a journey for me. You know, there's things that I've come to terms with, you know what, if I don't want to go to a party because I'm crying on the sofa because don't really care if they are upset with me because I didn't go to their birthday because my mental health today is more important. So, you know, it was that kind of realization that um, I guess fears, in some ways, Gail, now that I think about it, fears are about what we want to prioritize in a way. And like the thing about the nervous system when we have a fear reaction, I teach this in um, my coaching and in my courses, you know, when we have a fear reaction, the nervous system, you know, we have a grab. We're like, oh my goodness, I can't, I'm on autopilot, fight, flight, freeze, or fawn, which is the one that a lot of women do, which is to please our way out of a situation. Uh, so it feels like we don't have choice. 
And yet, if we can ground ourselves, if we can breathe, uh, I do a lot of somatic work, some shaking sometimes, even some like punching of a, of a pillow to get our ground back, then we can go, okay, what are my options here? And what do I want to prioritize? Do I want to prioritize my safety right now? Do I want to prioritize someone else's wishes? Do you, you know, and we can actually, the more times we practice that, the more, um, okay I think I've become at least maybe I can't speak for everyone but I've become and I guess I have helped clients to become as well the, the more okay we become with maybe disappointing others or others not being um cool with our decisions because we we stand by them I couldn't agree more with that and why didn't and myself included when I say this why didn't we stop caring years ago right why did we have to be the ages that we both are to really realize that, to be comfortable, not that we weren't comfortable in our own skin, but not worried about what other people think, other people think about us. And we both have young girls. And I think that that's so important to pass on at an early age is really well, let when, them- when did, you, when did you realize it? Because literally, I think this is only in my thirties, which is a tragedy. Yeah, it was my late thirties. Yeah. And that's when I realized it. And I was like, huh. You know, you, not everybody has to like you, you know, at work, for example, be relatable, get along, be respectable, right. And respect others and do the task at hand, but you don't have to be friends with the people, but you have to respect them, right. Your colleagues. And then with friends, well, if you don't like that person and they don't fit in your life anymore, it's not like push them aside, but maybe you interact with them less, for example. Um, or if they're very toxic, you do erase them completely and move on and find someone else. I think throughout our many seasons of life, right? We change and develop. And so people will come and go, mm. but I think the people that you want to keep in your trusted circle, you truly want to trust. And it's so, so important. And so that's something I definitely want to instill in my girls early on, right? Is be respectful. Yeah. Not everybody has to like you and not everyone's going to be your friend and vice versa, but just stay the course and do the right thing and be happy. You said you were bi and you're married to a man. How did you make that decision, Debbie? <laughs> Such a good question. Well, talk about the world not being built for us to flourish. And I haven't spoken a lot about this, um, but essentially I, I think I probably knew that I was bi when I was 12 and um, I had a partner at school in an all girls school. We kept it really quiet. And it was always a sort of, there was an edge of danger of if, if people found out. And in fact, somebody in our class kind of blackmailed us and said like, oh, I know what you're doing. And if other people find out. So I always had this sort of internalized biphobia, homophobia. And like I had gay male friends. I didn't have, apart from my partner who was, it was all very like, it's a hush hush. And we, we had male partners kind of at the same time. So it was all very, it was very strange. Um, but um, I, I didn't really know anyone who was a kind of a role model or elder in that domain. And um, and look, we were just coming out of the period of Section 28 um, in the UK, which was a law that said that homosexuality could not be promoted, whatever that means, i.e. educated about at all in schools. So um, it, had, it had been sort of rescinded, but only just. So teachers were like, what do we do now? So I guess... Um, I always kind of felt like this was a part of me that was not particularly welcome or like actually just needed to be shelved. And I guess maybe on some level on the spectrum of being bi, 
like actually you know maybe I I have a preference for men um and I think um you know I I supported various friends to come out over time and um and and because I was interested in men and also being in the Jewish community and, and I wanted children and all these things it kind of felt like an easy option but it kind of came back to me like after I met Al, who is my partner who is my person you know like he is just we're very, we're we're a partnership that's very we're very similar both of us he also runs his own business we're very independent we're very um we're both feelers as well as thinkers and we you know some partnerships it's like opposite us track we are very similar um but you know um he knows and he's he's very um clear that you know he he loves me for for who i am and he was very encouraging of me kind of acknowledging this part of my identity even though it would be easy to be like well I'm married to a man now and I pass for straight and maybe this is still internalized you know by phobia specifically about um you know oh you know a lot of my my queer friends might say oh well you know you you've had this much experience but you haven't experienced what it's really like to be queer because you've not been out and queer and in the street with your partner or whatever and I'm like yeah and there's a whole bunch of stuff that I repressed that I just didn't acknowledge like being blackmailed that someone was going to out me age 14 like you know and it's only in the years since like now I am um, one thing I didn't mention is I um am a trustee of a community called Makor Hayim I'm one of the co-founders of this Jewish reform community uh, which has a very similar vision to to, to to time to flourish it's essentially um a, a community of, of people who are trying to build a counter proposal to what the world wants us to be um and and there we have a pride shabbat a pride uh, shabbat every june time and we have gay elders in the community we have people who are hiv positive we have um people who are bi and in heterosexual relationships so suddenly i find myself in there these are my people and every time i go through one of these pride shabbats i kind of almost like remember more things about my experience you know being a teenager and i really you know reach out to her um you know age 13 14 15 and and i am um, i show her love and i actually came out to my parents only in my 30s after i married al my dad and my my brother were like yeah that's cool wow. my mom was like you know she had a moment about it for sure she was like mm. i mean my parents grew up in turkey it was not part of their like world generationally and and also i guess jewishly and culturally so um i get that and also um increasingly i'm trying to kind of embrace it as part of my narrative and who i am because um you know just as i didn't have those role models i really really want esley to know that there's so many there's such a spectrum of sexuality and there's so such a multitude of experiences and talk about that people are wonderful and the world is in trouble like hell we've got a lot of work to do <laughs> help we got to we got to we got to change some stuff here yeah the world is in trouble but we need more people like you debbie who you know took those suppressed feelings that are coming out now which is great but to to help empower others struggling with it today and and it's a little more acceptable in today's times versus when we were growing up but what a gift you are to help people you know on on their path so i i commend oh, you for your courage yeah. and for sharing you know that part of your journey with our listeners share with the listeners your personal story around baby loss because i know that ties into what you're doing for a living now 100% gosh yeah so this is if we're talking about career reinvention so if we go back so my my career i i've done a lot of career reinventing and in fact inventing of roles because i i don't think i 
since I started my work, I don't think I ever stepped into a role that existed before I arrived in it. <laughs> so I, um, I started out in uh, the not-for-profit space. Um, I joined um, the, the like founding team of uh, a interfaith NGO, which is about going into schools and particularly working with students, but then increasingly with teachers around um, particularly uh, kind of faith-based prejudice and how to counter that and how to give students both an understanding of different faith traditions and, a, and, and role modeling how different faith traditions could kind of sit alongside each other and not, you know, not be at odds, but also give them the tools to be able to have respectful but meaningful conversations about faith and belief. Um, so that was an awesome ride. It was six and a half years that I was there and I essentially continued to, to reinvent kind of I, I, got, I got to a point and I had a great manager who was like we have to make sure you don't get bored so she would kind of um keep me keep me um kind of evolving and I ended up being the training manager there and then moved to the corporate world to a corporate uh scale-up I'd say it wasn't quite a startup that did um consulting uh for leadership development programs particularly for early talent um but we as because that's such a strategic lever we would also work with <clears throat> middle managers and senior leaders as well so that was fascinating and the budgets once you've worked in not profits and you look at corporate budgets and you're like you're what now <laughs> like i've been working with paper and string this whole time but um this is epic um so that was that was great fun and i learned a lot but also um i experienced burnout when i was there so i i had already had this this experience of <clears throat> being not okay and being in an environment which kind of expected me and i had there was this narrative of you need to be okay because there's deliverables and there's clients and there's stuff um, so I wrote, I wrote about it on my blog, actually, under, under you are, uh, what, what if you are important? Um, I, that's when I first got my first coach, my first integral development coach, which is what I now am. So Bobby really helped me to turn towards um, the difficult feelings, the anger, the betrayal, the feeling that this dream job wasn't maybe what I thought it was. And she, she didn't have to push me very hard, but she, she definitely gave me the courage, encouraged me, encouraged me to, um, leave and to think you know to basically with nothing to to go to um and i think that for me is like when we, if we're going to talk about baby loss that for me is like my reference point for oh i can do hard things okay i can and, and also when you go through something big there's a recovery period that kind of has no like end date uh it was it was really like some bleak days uh, luckily my husband and i actually just booked flights and went away so we we did three weeks away and I was like sleeping a lot having lots of sun feeling kind of liberated but also you know heart heart sore and exhausted and that just takes time so I spent after that I spent a year in a company that was a, a leadership development startup it was very small and it was there that I got pregnant for the first time and I was uh, we were obviously delighted and it kind of all felt like part of the plan and there were plans to grow this startup and so forth. Um, and one Monday morning I started bleeding and it was like, wait, this isn't how it's supposed to go. Um, so, you know, total blur, but I, I basically by the Monday afternoon, it became apparent that this wasn't going to be a viable pregnancy, that there'd been a mis miscarriage, which means, um, nothing had had happened but the baby hadn't developed for some time um and obviously it was crushing i was just in total shock um we leveraged quite a few we told a few people we really felt like you know how people are like don't tell anyone until and it's like yeah sure but 
actually then you kind of then you sort of have to drop the bomb on people saying hey we were pregnant but we're not anymore so actually I'm really glad and I, I don't know I'm going to offer this to your listeners as like I would really question that norm it's for some people it's really right and that's what keeps you sane for others I would say don't be constrained by it because we were really able to benefit from the fact that we told like a close cadre of friends so we could be like hey something's up something's wrong and like a friend of mine, Claire, like drove around to us from like North London. She left her baby with her, with somebody, drove down with like a miscarriage emergency kit. She's very practical. Um, and was just there, like within, you know, without no questions asked. She didn't have to sort of process the information. She was like, right, I know what this means. So um, I guess uh, my, my work were really understanding about it. Um, but obviously having a third of the team disappear for an unknown amount of time um, was a real hit for them. And I was really conscious of that. And I had to keep bringing myself back to, well, right now it's just, it's just me. I just need to look after me and stop worrying about other things. It can be very um, a comforting distraction to think, oh, but I'm very important and I'm needed elsewhere. But really I needed every inch of my um energy to just recover physically and emotionally from the grief i mean it's just it's a very strange combination of like bodily decimation and heart shattering grief at the same time like god forbid you know be, being being in an accident or something and, and really having your body go through it but then also losing somebody that you love that you never knew and then people are sort of saying well it's okay you can try again or this kind of diminishing that happens and um you know it is there's a beautiful quote from the torah from the talmud actually that says uh even a baby at 30 days is a bride or a bridegroom in their parents eyes and i just think why 30 days like <laughs> little blue line like that we're, we're there we're there in like 25 30 years <laughs> on the wedding day you know debbie you brought up something very raw you said you know, how do we normalize this grieving period? And, you know, what is it? A quarter of all pregnancies end in miscarriage. Yeah. So it's something that's very common that happens to a lot of us. And it happened to me a few times. I had a few miscarriages throughout our journey of trying to conceive. And, you know, you don't forget those babies that never got to the light of day. And it's hard to grieve because it's physical, it's emotional. And like you said, people say, well, you can try again. At least you can get pregnant. Okay, well, that is a blessing, yes, but there's this grievance period. And, you know, taking time off of work, that's hard to do because people didn't know you were pregnant. You know, you don't want people in, to know you're, you're trying to conceive, you're trying to keep that under, you just want to tell your trusted circle, which I also think was a great thing you said a few moments ago. Having a trusted circle where you can trust those people because should something go awry, right? They can be there for you just well when everything is um, a-okay and you can celebrate, right? So let's talk about that bereavement experience and that grief. And how do you set up boundaries around that if you're going through miscarriages and trying to conceive and... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's such a... It's such a, an individual thing, depending on how, you know, some people find it very easy to just shut out the world and go, okay, this is my time. Like I'm going to disappear for a bit by, 
and that's you know when people are suffering sometimes that's a, a thing that they do for me I'm such a social person I'm such so in the world that just feeling absent it's almost like I was like am I going to cease to exist are people going to forget me but at the same time I'm not really the me that I I want to be like it really was a turning towards anger and uh why me and you know all these questions of like is this ever going to happen for me what if it never happens for me and I have to like pretend to be happy for everyone else for the rest of my life like there was a lot of those negative thought patterns that kind of lead to kind of situational circumstantial depression around projecting into the future going oh god I'm gonna feel like this forever I don't know if I can do that <laughs> like I don't know if the, and and because you don't feel those some I didn't certainly didn't feel the um the returns of the grieving process very quickly you know there'd be some better days and just some horrific days and then you know there's some people around you who are very invested in you being happy and well so you know they'll try to cheer you up and it's like no no there's an amazing poem i love gail called um, the cure by albert huffstickler and he says people say it's something like people say you get over things you don't get over things or at least you get over the measles but not a broken heart and I just think that to me, I only heard it much later, but that to me just so dignifies, you know, that this is not something that we just sail past or like it becomes like a funny anecdote or like, you know, it's, it, this is all like a, a blip. It's not a blip. It's like a defining thing. And as I, as, as you know, you know, we subsequently, I went through some um, not particularly good, not specialist therapy. Um, and then we got pregnant again the following year got past 12 weeks yay and then at 18 weeks found out that this pregnancy was not viable because this baby had um advanced by spina bifida which would have meant that they might have made it to term they may have lived a month and it was just an agonizing decision that was you know i guess at that point i was like i really got into magical thinking because i was like oh this has happened twice I'm literally never going to be happy again in my entire life. Like I was literally, and it's, I'm saying it like, it's funny. It wasn't funny. It was devastating. And I literally turned to AL and I was like, I don't think I will ever dance again. And I, I love to dance. I, you know, I dance as a practice. I was like, I don't think I'm ever going to dance again. <laughs> I think that is my dancing days are done. And of course, you know, I had to take, time away I had to really surround myself with people who understood I my I then managed to get some extra brilliant wonderful specialist support from a charity in the UK called Petals who we now support as a family um, that provide counseling for baby loss and through my counselor Flora I remember um, she was just so um, validating of everything that I said. And she also said, you know, part of my job is helping you navigate the social side of things because you, do, you should not be around these friends. You need, to, you need to tell them I'll be back in a bit, bye. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you need to find a way to absent yourself. Um, and I was living with my parents at the time, which had, some, you know, Al and I were living there, um, which had some complexities around it. Um, so, you know, I, I just, I really, every day thank Flora for what she taught me about boundaries because she gave me permission to say, uh, what do we talk about fear and prioritizing? It's like, I prioritize my healing over whatever 
you know, social kudos or social points I get from attending this or that. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that very raw and real and unfortunately relatable story, right? And um, one of our miscarriages happened week 11, 12. And so that's like when you're going to about to, you know, pop, pop open that sparkling grape cider and have the, the bubbles flow up with the balloons. And we, we couldn't, right? So we were so excited, like to let the cat out of the bag and it didn't, wasn't viable. And so yours got to 18 weeks and you shared your joy and then sadness. And so those boundaries are so incredibly important. And speaking of boundaries, working parents, both (laughs) men and women, right? There's still that stigma out there when you're trying to conceive and you're going through the ups and downs of the whole process. So let's talk about baby loss in the workplace, Debbie. What suggestions do you have for employees struggling with baby loss and how to cope? Such a good question. So um, I think giving yourself permission to take, take time off, whether they have mental health days, you know, in, in, your, in your office, like really not, the more we push through, the more stuff there is to heal later so I don't know how possible that is for people but really to think really carefully if now that we live in this new age of flexible working really start to think about what could I negotiate that could be flexible for me you know can I not be in work that day when there's the baby shower you know like really being strategic about that um I I would if you can you know share it with a few co-conspirators at work um, in my my framework for change, we talk about the three the three levers that we can pull are self reflection, embodied practice, and co conspirators. We cannot create change unless we there's some people that are in it with us and up to the same thing. So if there are people that work that you can share it with, who can be aware of what's going on for you, who can look out for you, mm-hmm. that's always really good. It's not possible for everyone, I know. Um, I think. Um, I would also encourage them to join a support group so they have somewhere that they know that even if they can't process their feelings about this right now, next Thursday I'm going to my group or I'm seeing my baby loss counsellor and there's somewhere to put it. I'd also really recommend either journaling or voice noting to yourself if you can bear to. Um, it's like your own little private grief podcast um, where you just get get it out, you know, or maybe there's somebody that you really who you, you know you can have a regular standing chat with where all they do is just listen to you and validate you um just a a friend who can listen um and i think also i'd really i mean this isn't so much an employee thing but this is about speaking to to your partner about it i think partner you know people grieve really differently um and i know for example um my friends who are a same-sex couple um you know they they had multiple miscarriages before they had their beautiful son and um there was a lot of barriers to them accessing the support they needed because it was like, well, which one of you is the real mother? You know, what a question, you know, like this is two parents who've lost. And actually in my, in my situation, like Al wasn't actually allowed to come with me when I had the termination for medical reasons, which I thought was outrageous. Um, I only realized later how outrageous it really was, but that thing of like, this is a two, well, assuming that you, you, you are two parents, this is a two parent deal and you need to lean on each other um and it, it can be really difficult when people are grieving in different ways but i would really i think the, the crux of it is share with people you trust because it's not something that you can drag yourself through alone and you shouldn't have to 
No, no. And and you're right in the medical profession. If you have to have a procedure done, um, yeah, your husband can't be there like a DNC. Yeah. In the recovery yeah. room. Yes. You can see your, your partner, but that that's still so, so hard on the person physically going through, right? What, what that is. And so those are great advice strategies for employees. What suggestions do you have, Debbie, for organizations to be more empathetic when addressing baby loss in the workplace and helping normalize it? Yeah. Well, first of all, you know, there's lots of companies now I'm spotting them that are following Australia and New Zealand's lead. They've made it, they've actually legislated for paid leave for baby loss, miscarriage. Um, so um, that is uh, a lot thanks to the amazing Samantha Payne of Pink Elephants, who's done a ton of campaigning. I really recommend you check out Pink Elephant. Um, they have, um, and this is a great way also for, for, for both people who are going through stuff and um, people who want to support them to find out about the issue. So they have a miscarriage support group on Facebook. They also have um, pregnancy after loss for people who are who have conceived, and there's also conceiving after loss so that people who are at different stages in their journey aren't triggering each other um you know people can can feel like they're, they're with people who are at the same stage as the journey so that's that's something that um i think i would advise people to do is like proactively educate yourself on on the issues um i think speaking about it when it's not a hot topic like put it explicitly in the handbook you know like if it, you know, if you experience miscarriage, da, 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 like these are the things that are available to you. Is there access to counseling? Is there access to, you know, paid time off? Can it be done discreetly if the person doesn't want to share? Like some people really don't want to share that they were pregnant because then they feel like it puts a target on their back or whatever um, in terms of, oh, she's going to go on maternity. So, uh, and that's a whole other problem that we probably need to address. Oh, unfortunate. We're still talking yeah. about that still here so i i think that um you know putting it in the handbook and 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 having you know not not it not just existing in writing but it being something that people recognize happens and um therefore we put resource behind it whether that is paid leave counseling you know uh there's that there's that meme i think that went around which was like when i got a broken when i broke my leg and it's got all the speech bubbles being like get well soon hope you're fine da, da, da. like sending love and then when I had depression, nothing, you know, it's that it's like, actually, maybe, you know, you could send like send if you're the manager who knows, but nobody else knows, like maybe you could just discreetly send some flowers or some chocolates and be like, I'm really sorry. Um, you know, enjoy these. I hope this brings you a, a little, you know, ray of sunshine um, in what you're going through. So I would say, you know, be the, be the person you would want you would want someone to be when you're in deep suffering and we don't have to go through the same things as people to um to have empathy you know we really can um we can show up for people and we can do better absolutely and show that you you care and you're sincere about that and don't put targets on people's backs what advice do you have for the listeners debbie when they think about their inner critic and trying to temper that and rid themselves of their inner critic. Wow. So the first thing I, I always, uh, when, when this comes up in coaching and it always does because a, a huge part of, um, integral development coaching is, is turning towards the parts of ourselves that we, we don't normally. And, and the inner critic is a part of us that fundamentally wants the best for us. So the demon the inner critic gets a bit of a raw deal in that it gets like, Oh, it's such a mean old, nasty voice but really it wants the best for us it's trying to protect us 
from risk, from embarrassment, from rejection. It's just really unskillful at it because it basically uses any, any fear tactic at its disposal to keep us in that safe zone, right? Mm. So it's kind of like an overbearing teacher for some people. I, I actually ask my coaching clients, like, what, what does that voice sound like? Is it an overbearing teacher? Is it your dad from when you grew up? Is it, you know, is it, uh, for, for one person, it was, um, uh, it was like a train conductor shouting at you for not having the right ticket. <laughs> I was like, that's very specific. Um, for me, there's a particular voice that the inner critic has sometimes, which you'll, this is like, related to the singing which is like this little fat pink opera singer who's like your crap she just like sings at me that i'm terrible sorry i don't know if i can swear you're rubbish um and so you know i think um it's quite good sometimes to be able to locate it as a voice rather than you like acknowledging a truth it's like oh there's a part of me that's saying something to me about how i'm somehow inadequate or like is this so so it gives us a kind of separation another way that a, a friend said that she does it is that she imagines it in like um in like flashing lights <laughs> like written in flashing lights you're rubbish in flashing lights and you're like ah oh, yeah that's funny like where did that come from rather than oh yeah i am actually <laughs> you know like if you see a sign in the street that says you're rubbish you're not going to be like oh yeah i am actually you know so i think that's quite clever it's so the first sentence to recommend it's going to make you stop and think if you see that blinking right at you. Yeah. You're going to be like, huh, who put that there? That's yeah. the thing to ask. Who put that there rather than, oh yeah, I am rubbish. So then, so the first thing is to clock it. If we've had a moment of our nervous system, because quite often the, the inner tr critic will trigger our fight flight response. So we need to breathe. We need to shake, you know, um, shame is a big one, you know, that it will, it will try and shame us into, you know, it's, you're a terrible person for letting this person down. If you made a mistake, whatever. So um, it, we need to get that cortisol out of our bodies. And then I think that there's, there's a process that we need to do around what is, uh, we, could, we could go a number of routes. One might be, what is this, trying, this thought trying to protect me from? Like what's on the other side of this thought? If I got over this thought, what risk would I be entertaining? So for example, if I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to send out this email like with my prices and my, you know, my whole offer to this client. And like, if I do it, then maybe they'll, they'll like reject me and say I'm too expensive and whatever. Or maybe there's a fear of like, also, oh, if I, if I do it, maybe they'll say yes. And then I'll have to actually deliver on it. Oh no. But actually, so maybe it's, it's quite fun to like look over the fence and be like, okay, what, what is this actually protecting me from? It's protecting me from like a range of things. And then you say, well, another way in might be, well, is, that, is there a way I can comfort this, this part? Because this part wants to keep me safe. How could I appease it? How could I have a conversation with it from a place of being settled from my kind of bigger self to say, hey, I see you little pink dress opera singer. I am really... Uh, appreciating your efforts at keeping me safe, but um, you know, what do you need? What do you need from me? Mm -hmm. And you can kind of talk it down. So, I mean, it's actually, it's a real skill. I think um, I find it much easier to do in conversation with someone. And it's a big part of my coaching practice is have, helping people to have these conversations with parts of themselves. Yeah. Well, you're in good company when you say, you know, take a, take a deep breath, breathe through it. I'm all about pelvic floor breathing and right. Connecting the mind, to the pelvic floor. 
but I think we should be singing more, especially you. You've got a beautiful voice. So maybe it's not breathing as much as it is belt out that complete rubbish. Do that again. (laughs) You're rubbish. That. We need to do more of that. So, you know, I thank you for, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, there's a great song for this, which is if anyone is a crazy ex-girlfriend fan, I am a Rachel Bloom stan. I cannot get enough of Rachel Bloom. And she sings a song called You Ruined Everything. And she literally does like a Celine Dion style ballad about how she ruined everything and she's totally useless. And I can't believe you did that. And it's like, it just really puts into perspective and it helps you laugh at yourself for being such a melodramatic queen. I love it. I love it. So I want to thank you for getting raw with us talking about, you know, your baby loss, talking about how we can all cope, whether we've experienced it ourselves, know people going through it, how we can support each other. Mm. And then also talking about the inner critic, because that's something that people don't often talk about. And, you know, I was alluding to it as more negative, but you put a positive spotlight on it. And I, I just, I love that, Debbie. I love that. If we can all embrace that inner critic and, and like you said, comfort it, answer it, listen to really what is under those layers, right? And so as we, as we start to wrap here, tell us why legacy is so important to you as a working mom and why is it so important? Mm, I love this question. It says so much about you too, Gail, about the fact that your work is so rooted in, in legacy, that this is about something that stretches way beyond us in, in space and in time. I think, you know, when I look at my work with my Jewish community and I look at my work with Time to Flourish and I look at the work that I do with partners too, um, I'm, I'm involved with the Coven program that um, one of your previous guests, Garzale, um, is running and that is a real alignment. When I see these things together, I see the cumulative potential for impact and legacy because it's 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 integrated it's all the same thing it's saying the world is not set up for us to flourish how do we make flourishing the norm instead of the exception and how do we do that for everyone you know everyone who's um caught up in these narratives and these systems which don't serve us and when i think about my daughter obviously like well i'm gonna cry now but um you know she's the one who who got here you know arby and bumba didn't make it esley made it and I do it for Arby and Bamba as well, for their memory. You know, I'm courageous and I'm their mom in the same way. But with Esley, who made it, who I didn't know if she was going to make it right up to the end, I was like, maybe not. But she made it. I, I just want her to unfold into herself. And when she rubs up against the forces that say that she can't be herself, I want to be there, <laughs> to be able to advocate for her for her flourishing and also when she comes up against life's challenges, you know, and, and she and her, her generation really, we are looking at unprecedented collapse in our society. It's not just COVID, we're looking at, we're gonna go through some crazy changes in Essie's lifetime. I'm not about like, how do we prevent that mess? I just wrote an, an, a blog about preventing life's mess. It's not about preventing the, unevent- the, the inevitable in some ways, some ways it's too late, but Um, We can try and prevent that which we can prevent and that which we can't let us face. Let us really truly have the courage to face it and change it because, oh goodness, we just, we need more people who are willing to practice 
turning towards the things that need to change <laughs> because um, quite often we talk about the apathy of, oh, there's nothing we can do. Oh, this is you know too big or too scary or it's not for me to do. When I work with clients, yes, it's about their self-realization, but there's always a question of based on what you've learned about yourself, what, what do you now know that you serve? What do you now know that you are committed to in the world? And even if that means being more compassionate to the people I know, you know, being less judgmental or having the capacity to forgive, you know, that's like, that's a step on the developmental path of creating, um, creating a more just and compassionate and loving world. I love it, Debbie. You brought a tear to my eye. So thank you so much. I look forward to staying in touch with you and continue to flourish in all that you do. Oh, what a blessing. And you, Gail. I feel like there's such synergy in what we do and feel very, very lucky to, um, to have been a part of Theodora Speaks. It is my sincere hope that you enjoyed this episode and you found the treasures in some of the ashes that Debbie sprinkled throughout the conversation today. And we could have gone much deeper right into some of her stories, but we wanted to go just deep enough to know that if you're struggling with loss, baby loss in particular, you're not alone. And to tap into those trusted circles and to tap into your courage and confidence and clarity. And if you are struggling on how to do that, to call one of us, reach out to Debbie, reach out to myself, reach out to your best friends, and we can help you because we're all here for each other throughout our many seasons of life. The three key takeaways I want you to take away from the conversation with Debbie today are, let go of your fear of judgment. Stop being likable and wanting to please everyone and please your way out of situations to simply fit in shed some of that and you'll just feel freer and lighter on your feet secondly embrace and appease your inner critic that's what debbie encourages us to do and lastly debbie points out that we need to teach our legacy how to flourish in this messy world so just because we live in a messy world doesn't mean we shouldn't all shine and sparkle and use our uniqueness to make the world a better place for ourselves and for our legacy. I wanna thank Debbie Dannon for spending time with us and sharing her very vulnerable story. I wanna thank you, our valued listeners, for staying the course with me and listening to why this episode is so important. And lastly, I wanna thank New Voice Studios for producing our podcast series. I invite you to take my online course, Theodora Speaks, the online version, my five-step methodology that helps you take calculated risks in your career to reinvent your professional life. And those five steps are decisiveness, clarity, courage, confidence, and balance. Two of the five Debbie talked about today, which were courage and confidence. So visit gailkeller.org and learn more about my online course, and how I can help you successfully reboot your career without the crash and burn. Thank you and stay courageous.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.